This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am so excited to be talking about a paperback release of a book that I completely devoured in a sitting. It is How Far the Light Reaches by Sabrina Imbler. It has everything you could possibly want in a nature book, in a memoir, in all the weird spaces that they meet in between. This book came out in December of 22. It's coming out in paperback now, and I can't wait for this book to find a new audience of people. So Sabrina, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna, and for the kind words about the book. So I always start with wanting to hear a little bit about the book from your perspective, because it's easy to sort of like read the back and get some of the gist of it. But I feel like it always rings a little bit more true coming from the author themselves. So could you give us a little description of the book? Yeah, How Far the Light Reaches is, I always imagined it as sort of 10 portraits of sea creatures, um, where I am also, I suppose, like a portrait alongside them, um, where each essay or chapter in the book sort of dives into the life of a particular sea creature and sort of explores what resonances I find with my own life in in the story of that sea creature. So there's an essay about a, a deep sea octopus, a whale, a cuttlefish, um, a goldfish, which I'm always like, you know, the subtitle of the book is a life in 10 sea creatures. And I'm like, it's a fresh, it's a freshwater fish, but it, it lives in estuaries. So I feel like that that's salty enough to um, to count. <laughs> but I'm always worried that someone will be angry when they read the first essays about a goldfish and they've been expecting, you know, some kind of amazing barracuda or something. I think if someone is that put off by the goldfish right away, maybe it just isn't the book from the for them through the that's entire true. thing. <laughs> because that's true. it has a great opening this book. I mean, immediately the idea of you getting kicked out of a pet co is, I was immediately like, I got to see where this voice is going to take me because first of all, solidarity for anyone who's ever been kicked out of a store, you know, especially when you're a kid and you feel like it's simultaneously like the worst thing that's happened, but also maybe the coolest thing that's ever happened to you. So I really felt that. Have you been kicked out of a store? Okay. So... <laughs> Harken back, mother, I'm sure you're listening to this, so sorry, but I have been kicked out of a few stores in the Northtown Mall in Blaine, Minnesota. Wow. Sorry about that to everyone for probably just like causing a ruckus. Also, I once got asked to leave a Burberry for touching a coat, which is real rude. You're in the burp, like the coats are there to be purchased. Mm -hmm. They should be touched. That's rude. That's rude. Mm -hmm. So that's going to go in my memories. Once I was asked <laughs> to leave for touching a coat. And... I think the idea of starting with science and nature and the natural world and also comparing it to ourselves and how we fit in this natural world feels like something that I think a lot of people can resonate with and a lot of people can understand, though I think you pick some creatures that maybe people aren't going to be as familiar with. I had to Google a salp. I had never mm. heard of that before. And actually, Microsoft Word doesn't think it's a real word sometimes. Yes. <laughs> that was a problem in a lot of writing of the book. Um, I had to turn off like autocorrect on on all of my Word, Word docs. So I wonder, 
I think it makes sense. It seems like you're a person who's been writing for a long time and has sort of always been someone putting out words as a way to communicate with the world. But I wonder how you sort of got started writing about nature and writing about the natural world in that way. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I guess when I was a kid, I was one of the many kids who wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, when I was still a kid, I realized that that would involve a lot of math. And also, um, I, even as a kid, I was extremely worried about climate change. And I had read in some like Yahoo article that marine biology was one of the most depressing careers to have, like because of climate change um, and grappling with that reality. And I was like, I, my disposition is too tender. <laughs> Let me pursue some other, some other line of work. Um, and I think for some reason, I just kind of forgot that that was my interest. And so when I, when I sort of, you know, I always loved writing and in college, I wrote for the paper and sort of always wanted to be a journalist. I guess I was, you know, a lot of the texts that you read in class are about art or film or literature. And I sort of figured like, those are the things that are worthy of writing about. And I just figured I would write something in, in those spheres. Um, but when I was writing my thesis in college, I decided to write it about whales um, because I, I guess that we knew when I, when I was thinking about the things that inspired me, um, it was, you know, I loved books. I love movies. I love reality television, but the things that sort of compelled me to write and sort of capture this feeling that I had inside of me that I didn't feel like I was seeing on the page or that I wanted other people to experience alongside with me was always in in the ways that I encountered animals, um, mostly sea creatures. And with whales, you know, I figured that's, you know, now that's an animal that's worthy of a thesis. <laughs> um, and so I, I tried to write this whale thesis and it ended up being a really <laughs> wretched <laughs> sort of piece of writing. There's so much written about whales. I was reading all of these, you know, old white men who were considering whales and pondering whales and writing about whales as we've written about them before. And I was like, I have nothing to add to this. And I also don't really feel like I care, you know, <laughs> about this sort of mythic notion of a whale. I, I feel like the wonder for me has always been in the close up of encountering, you know, like a strange slug or, you know, being in a touch pool or seeing something like a salp that's washed up on the beach and, being able to hold it in your hands. And, you know, I've never had like a, an up close and personal experience with a whale. So I think the thesis was sort of the first time I started, my, my gears started worrying of like, oh, maybe, maybe I can write about nature and write about, write about the ocean. And that was also um, the time of my life when I read 52 Blue by Leslie Jameson. And that was very influential in sort of figuring out like, you know, people, around the world have connections to sea creatures and maybe they're just not being asked about it or maybe they don't think of yeah like the sea is a place to look for connection and inspiration and so i think after that i was like well you know why why not write about the sea but maybe not focus on whales as much even though there's there's a whale in the book <laughs> you're like all right there still had to be one whale i feel like it's like a pre a, a tax you have to pay if you're going to write about sea creatures you got to put a whale in there somewhere otherwise they don't let you Absolutely. Yeah. That and the octopus. Th those are my texts. <laughs> yes. I think it's especially interesting because like you were saying, I think when you think about, okay, what could I be as a journalist these days? I think like pop culture writing comes so first and foremost to the mind, especially for people who are queer, people who are not white, people who do not fit the sort of 
preconceived notion of what like a science journalist would be, especially now where I feel like the sphere of science journalism seems to be shrinking and there's less and less sort of opportunity, like with popular science and all of these things, there's just less options to seek out new journalism and new voices in that way that I feel like a lot of people are sort of turning to publishing books Mm. as opposed to journalism even though I think there is still a lot of really interesting voices being out there. They're just a little bit harder to find now. Absolutely. I mean, when I first started um, sort of trying to be a science journalist, I, I really felt like I didn't belong. Like I, I interned at a couple of magazines and um, I had just come out. And I remember like just at multiple magazines having conversations with like white men coworkers who would just kind of like ask me if I was gay or ask me like why I was gay or, you know, tell me that I didn't seem like someone who would be gay. And at the time I was like taking it in stride. I was like, these are just the kinds of conversations that you have in a workplace. <laughs> and I think, yeah, spending several years like trying to hack it, really struggling and really seeing no one um, who felt like me in in those in those workings, in those workplaces. I think was part, yeah, as you mentioned, like a really, a really big push for me to think about, well, maybe I should write a book, like maybe this is the way where I can sort of be honest and open about my own particular identity and the reasons that it has led me to be interested in science and the natural world. I feel like a lot of us write the books that we would have wanted to see in the world when we were trying to get a job. And so I think that was also part of it. And I think the way that you combine your own narratives with these scientific passages that have a lot of voice and a lot of passion behind them, but are still telling you facts and hoping that they can expand what you know about even a creature you might know about, like an octopus or something you may have never really thought that much about, especially in the sense that I think a lot of people, you know, if they're thinking, okay, I'm going to write a a book about myself in comparison to animals, you know, they're like, all right, lions and wolves and (laughs) like these strong creatures, these, you know, well-known creatures. And yet there are so many people in the world, you know, people of color, people of mixed backgrounds, queer people, trans people who they've never seen themselves in those, you know, really mainstream and out there things. They're looking for themselves in those spaces in between where. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I think, you know, when I was first because I have been working in science journalism, like since before I I published the book, and I I still work as a science journalist. And I was initially really scared of sort of trying to make these connections between myself and and these animals and the science that that surrounds them and that helps us understand them. Because, you know, anthropomorphism is very much frowned upon in a lot of spaces. And it is, it's always been a hot topic in science journalism, um, where I think over time, people have become much more comfortable with it and much more open about acknowledging the fact that we've just been doing it for like a really long time, but maybe not like acknowledging it as anthropomorphism. And, you know, I think it really helped me when I would see, you know, examples of anthropomorphism in science journalism that I was reading that I would really hate, you know, examples of like, you know, this cuttlefish is like devious because it's in drag or, you know, this cuttlefish is is a transvestite or even like, do these cockroaches remind you of your like ex-boyfriend and sort of these examples of like these universalizing claims of like, well, this animal is like these groups of people or, you know, in this way that we find strange or uncomfortable. 
And I think what helped me like sort of validate the project that I wanted to do in this book was to think, you know, I'm not trying to speak for all people. I'm not even trying to speak for a group of people. Like I'm just trying to speak for myself and my own particular experience. And I think giving myself permission to say, you know, maybe this will resonate with some people, maybe it will resonate with no one. But I, I believe in these connections. And I believe in in sort of the relationship that I feel with these animals. And yeah, was was really, I think, powerful in helping me find the characters in my book and also write my life alongside theirs. And obviously, in a in a work like this, there's so much more vulnerability that comes with publishing it than, you know, a if you had just written about the animals themselves and not included your own connections and your own life, I guess, right along with it. But I think that there is now this audience of people who are clamoring for these stories, that they need and want these stories to reflect back on themselves. And I think even people who maybe have not ever lived any of the things that you have in your book that might say, I just need an insight into someone else's life. And I think the community aspect of how you write, um, not in the sense of, like you said, saying, okay, this is, these people are this animal, but the fact that you say, this is the communities that I have found, my family, my chosen family. I think there's a lot to sort of unpack and to go deeper there for readers who are looking for something beyond just a science text. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I really hope that the book would both reach, you know, queer audiences, mix, mixed audiences, um, Asian audiences, and also reach people who maybe are just interested in learning about whales or, you know, octopuses or something. Yeah, so I, I wanted to, I guess, help queer people if they didn't already find themselves interested in like strange creatures, which I feel like every gay person I know is like, oh, a strange bug. <laughs> like that does a crazy thing with its body. Like, tell me more. That um, dancing crab. Act, yeah, absolutely. I People, gay people love crabs. <laughs> you know, like any piece of nonfiction, I wrote a lot of it years ago now. And so it's funny to, you know, even when the uh, hardcover launch happened, a lot of the stories felt very much like that was a thing in my past that I think about very tenderly, but you know, I don't think about as um, as much in my current body and my current self. But one of the essays that still feels so fresh in my mind is the last essay of the book, um, which is about this creature called the immortal jellyfish, which can age in reverse, um, where you know it starts off life as an egg and then it grows into this kind of like palm tree like polyp, and from this polyp stage adult medusas, which are the umbrella stage of jellyfish, sort of like um, bud off and and live freely. And um, when the adult medusas are injured, they can basically age back um, and become a polyp again and sort of revert to a more juvenile state. And when I was writing this book, I felt like a perfect metaphor for the sort of second adolescence that a lot of queer and trans people experience and sort of the the questions that a lot of us have of, you know, what if I could relive my childhood? What if I could be more open? Or what if I was in a safe that was space where for me to be open, you know, as as I wanted to be in my identity um, or my gender? And it was a really special experience because, you know, in, in early drafts of, of this essay, I just sort of reimagined my own childhood. But it was like the last essay that I worked on the book. And I was so tired <laughs> writing about myself. And I was like, I can't be the only per like, I can't be the only person in this essay. And so I sort of made a call to queer and trans writers who I knew and queer and trans friends and also just some strangers on Twitter who were very kind to respond and sort of reimagine their own childhoods. And it was really 
special to weave those together since the book came out and doing, you know, events and and festivals and visiting colleges, especially. It's been really special to hear people sort of share some of their own like reimaginings or things that the essay sparked sparked in them. And it's it's felt really special to sort of see, yeah, I guess how people have connected um, with the book. And I, you know, I feel like if I were to do like a revised edition, like it would be so special to include new or different stories, um, just as a sort of constant project of reimagining. I think it something that strikes me so often when I was reading is how alive and changeable so much of the language feels, even though, you know, it is your voice telling us everything the entire time. There's this sort of current, not to, you know, as a ocean pun. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> that runs through it that, and I think you even say, you know, this is true as I'm writing this, but this will not always be true. This has not, al- this hasn't always been true. You know, there is this sense, I think, in memoir so often that there has to be this like ultimate truth. You cannot write in a memoir until you have the ultimate truth about yourself. Or you cannot write about yourself, you know, and what if it's not how you feel in 10 years or one year or five minutes? So I think that having that sort of sense in in writing about the self and the journey, it's like reassuring and sort of a relief to read. Like someone's like, no, like this is what I'm writing right now, but I can't guarantee you that this is how I'll always be. Absolutely. And no, that's such a, um, that's such a crucial part of the book when I sort of realized that, which, you know, it seems obvious now, but I think I never would have been able to publish the book if I were like, well, need to figure everything out because then I would be dead. (laughs) And um, I, yeah, that my advance was not (laughs) big enough for me to just coast on that. But I think it was really helpful to just know, you know, every, every memoir that we encounter is sort of this stamp in time of the author's life and they've, you know, grown and evolved beyond it but that doesn't make those memories or that memoir in that in that point of time any less true and so I really wanted each essay in the book because they really do span like my life from my childhood to my I guess (laughs) mid-20s when I was writing this book and being very strict with myself about needing to know everything which is so silly in retrospect but each I wanted each essay to feel true in as true to the self that was inhabiting that that essay or living that experience as possible. Um, and so even now, you know, I, I do feel a lot of distance between some of the essays. But when I when I read them, I, I'm sort of transported to that time where it's like, no, that's actually that is what I those were my my biggest fears of, you know, being dumped <laughs> by my ex in this whaling museum or um, not really knowing, you know, my gender, which I guess is a question that I'll be answering for the rest of my life. But to know, yeah, that it's, I think it's, it's interesting and important for writers to, to write it through those experiences, because, you know, sometimes resolution never comes, um, but you want to be able to track the journey. Especially like if you're thinking, if we're thinking about science writing, we are ready to accept when science tells us we, we learned more, we discovered mm-hmm. more, what we thought, it wasn't quite that. No, we know more now. And it's actually this. But yet we're so reluctant to do that with ourselves. We think we have to, there has to be one answer. And as soon as I find it, I'll just know, even though we we don't think about the rest of the world like that. We're ready to accept change, just not always with ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think if if the pandemic has taught anyone anything, <laughs> hopefully it's taught people something. But, you know, I really, I think, shed light on how messy science can be and how it is this constant pro- like process of revision and clarification. And, you know, well, we tried this and we need to go back to this. And, you know, I think. 
that is also just, as you said, like how we live our lives, like it's very messy. It is chaotic sometimes. Sometimes we change and sometimes we, you know, go back to something that we that we believed earlier. And yeah, we should be more generous with ourselves and letting ourselves change. To hit on the science a little bit, I just have to know because I'm always, I mean, I found myself Googling so many things as I was reading because, I mean, I think anyone who is interested in the ocean and the many creatures that inhabit it, some of it just seems like it can't possibly be true. Like, I mean, when I was reading about the cuttlefish and you learn all these things that this one creature can do with its physical form and you're like, that just can't possibly all be true. And I was watching YouTube videos, (laughs) but I wonder how the research process works for you as you write. Do you have, you know, people that you reach out to, fact-checking, all that kind of stuff? I'm always kind of wondering how all that comes together. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of the creatures that exist um, in the book I learned about when I was just trying to be a science journalist. um, And I had this, like, part-time job on top of my other science internship where I was just writing kind of clickbait about the ocean. Um, And I was writing like five aggregate of stories a week, just about different creatures. And so I learned about a lot of um, animals that are in the book now through that job. Like I learned about the octopus, the crab, um, a lot of the, they're always coming out like every other year with a new study that's like a cuttlefish can also do this incredible thing, you know, like I, I learned about their abilities to, you know, change the texture of their skin and sort of how they have these muscle sacs that they can tense and then just have like bumps in their skin for like an hour and just it's not like an active clenching it's just kind of like they just change their texture and that's just how it is for a while like it really it really is incredible so you know I had this cast of characters but I'm really grateful that you know it took me a while to imagine and pitch and sell the book and in that process I also grew as a journalist I think gained a lot of skills of just being able to actually investigate these these animals so I read a lot of scientific papers um you know, I think a lot of, I really owe so much to other science journalists who are writing about these animals. And I would sort of use their stories as a starting point and read the paper that they were about or they were citing. And in some cases, I reached out to the scientists themselves to say like, hey, I don't really understand this section or, you know, do you think this is an apt comparison to make? And I also, in in some of the essays, like went into history books. Um, I, you know, it's, it's funny science books are not really a good way to study science because as you mentioned like it's always changing and you know, if you come out with a book about dna one year like next year there's just going to be so much more <laughs> that you weren't able to capture so i really tried to focus on papers and focus on um you know scientists who are still working in those fields who i could sort of check things by um and in this process i realized the sort of horrifying fact that most books aren't fact checked which i don't think I knew going in and then realized like this onus will be upon me of finding a fact checker of funding a fact checker. So I was lucky enough to apply to grants and hire the science journalist Hannah Co, who's also a wonderful poet. Um, and they fact checked my book sort of in the final stages where I would send them drafts and um, they fact checked also my own personal life, which like, thank God they did because there was a lot that I misremembered or just kind of, you know, filled in the gaps and it was interesting where I was like, well, I'm an objective investigator of, you know, the cuttlefish, but I am not an objective investigator of my own life. And it was really helpful, not just for the the truth of the book, um, but I think also just my understanding of myself and, you know, analyzing myself sometimes as a creature of like, why is my instinct always to respond like this, you know, when I'm confronted with this gap in my memory or 
why, you know, as a child, did I always have this tendency of like filling in? Yeah, just filling in the gaps. So it was a really instructive process that made the book so much better. It is like nerve wracking to hear you say that fact checking is not, you know, like <laughs> the norm. But then I also think about like a lot of the books out there and I'm like, yeah, that tracks. I, I can see sense. how some of these things <laughs> slip through the cracks. Absolutely. I also have to say that among like the things that I love about this book so much are the title and the jacket. I think that they work mm. so well with everything, especially the title, which is about, you know, this idea of how far down the light reaches among the sort of zones or layers of the ocean. And it reminded me so much um, of reading Susan Casey's book, The Underworld, and how mm. she talks about the sort of life that happens where the light can't reach and how we, you know, I think spent so long thinking in science and in the world, like, okay, the only things in the ocean have to be where the light is because we can't possibly imagine that there is a whole ecosystem beyond where the sun can reach. And then you apply that back on yourself and you think about all the things living where the sun or the light may not reach. And I was like, oh, I'm floored. I have to just sit down for a second and think about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, I really appreciate that. They changed the title in the UK. Um, and I also did have to fight a little bit for the title because it crucially does not say sea creatures. <laughs> the idea first came to me when I was on the Wikipedia for like ocean, like back in the earliest, earliest stages of the project where I was like, what will my book be called? And, you know, it's just the sentence like the ocean is divided according to how far like light reaches. And I was like, that is so beautiful. And I mean, I think I think a lot of I think about the book as a love letter almost to the deep sea. You know, a lot of the the creatures I write about are in coral reefs or, um, you know, goldfish bowls and ponds. But so many of my favorite creatures and the most memorable ones in the book do live in do live in the deep sea and are so far removed from any stretch of ocean that we know or are able to visit. And I think, you know, I found so many parallels with the ways that we fear the strangeness of the deep sea with the way that I think people fear the strangeness of queer communities or trans communities or any experience that is unlike their own. And I really wanted to find connection with these creatures that, you know, I'll never meet. Like I, I would never be able to exist in this biome that is their home. And they also would like explode. <laughs> they were brought up to my desk. Um, but, you know, we are all perfectly adapted to our corners of the world. And, you know, I find the strange and often unsettling nature of their existence, like, so fascinating and, and like this really reverent point of connection between us. So, I yeah, I was very interested in thinking about, like, where there is no light and where, you know, those those parts of our story, whether it's the ocean or my own life that are the most inaccessible, like what would happen if I tried to see it um, and tried to un understand it on its own terms. I think there's something so poetic about loving something so much and like having so much connection with a creature that you could never be near and it can never be near you. I think that really, <laughs> that really hits somewhere of like, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder too, going back a little bit to the science, since so much of your work and of this specific book in general is about your connections with the queer community with gender, with your own gender, is it ever a challenge working in the world of science where things are so heavily gendered with like the biological sex of creatures? And I feel like there's a lot of language and sort of emphasis put on, you know, the male blank does this, the female mm. blank does that. Making those sort of connections and drawing parallels 
how does that work for you in the sense of reconciling those things? Mm. I mean, yeah, I, you know, science is historically very male centric in terms of who is able to participate in it, who is celebrating it, um, which animals, you know, we study like so much of our understanding of species like an- non-human animals is based in the male as sort of the prototype of of the animal. But I was really lucky to, I guess, be working on this book during sort of this golden age of feminist science. I think about Lucy Cook, whose book Bitch is about like the female of the species. And she talks about these amazing biological adaptations that many female animals have, some of which are you know, traditionally masculine, some of which are just crazy and strange in their own way. And, you know, as I was also just working as a science journalist, like reporting um, for my job, I, you know, I would write stories about a lot of, there's kind of this like renaissance of studying animal clitorises right now, which is very cool. Um, A lot of that work is led by Patricia Brennan, who's this amazing um, researcher who does you know, basically a lot of the argument of like, well, it's just easier to study the penis because it sticks out so you can draw it. Um, And she will make these amazing like silicon molds of vaginas and clitorises by like filling the the vaginal canal with silicon and then removing it like a lollipop and just like seeing like, oh, this is how, you know, a a duck vagina is like all swirly, you know, to accommodate the duck penis. And, you know, I, I wrote this story about like how the clitoris of the death adder is shaped like a heart, which is like very beautiful. And I was like, that's so wild. That's so like, I didn't even know that they had a clitoris and, you know, it's, it's capable of sensation. And I was reaching out to all these researchers, you know, saying like, have you heard of this? And a lot of people who study snakes were like, oh yeah, like we've always known about this clitoris because it's just there and it's like hard to ignore, but we just haven't been like writing about it. And so I, I'm really grateful to like Lucy Cook and also Rachel Gross, whose book Vagina Obscura is also about you know, female anatomy and mostly in humans, but has some some animals in it who are sort of spreading the good word of like feminist science and um, an understanding of of female animals, which also like in in this greater understanding of female anatomy in animals also just comes the existence or the acknowledgement and celebration of intersex animals, because there are so many intersex animals. There are also so many in particular intersex snakes that are just like, oh yeah, like that's just common. Like many, like, like, I think they're, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to quote any numbers because I'm, I'm going to get them wrong, but like animals have immense amounts of biological variation and it's amazing to learn more about them and also just know like how common it is. And I think it's been very special for lots of people to sort of be able to see themselves in just that very direct parallel of like, well, you know, there are intersex snakes or, you know, there are animals that do ha- like clear their own um, anatomy or biological sex in really interesting ways. And I am excited for the idea and the notion that that science and those different things are actually going to be recorded and reported upon and of interest, because I think there's so much of this, you know, of this idea that, well, sure, we've we've always known that, but we just didn't think it mattered. We just mm-hmm. didn't think anyone would care. You know, it didn't fit in what was already, you know, being reported, being written about. And so now hopefully there are actually so many people that are interested. I think now, I mean, I, I know so many more people that are like avid readers of nature books because they're interested mm. in this world. I think especially post-pandemic, so many people are like, I need to understand the natural world better. And looking for ways to 
go beyond what I think is just already been out there and to find these new and interesting ways to connect with the world around us. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and for anyone who's interested, I really recommend Bitch by Lucy Cook. It's like such a fun and and wild book. Was there anything that really surprised you while you were writing or in the time that has elapsed since the hardcover has published that you like wouldn't have pictured when you first sat down to write it? Mm. I guess um, something that's been really special is when I've been, you know, visiting colleges and like talking to students, um, sometimes teachers will sort of assign them their own project of like, if you like, you know, find an animal in the sea or on land or in the sky or wherever, um, and, you know, find a point of connection with them. And it's been so special, but also sometimes like jealous making to see the connections that students are making between animals that I've never heard of or animals that I've always dismissed as being, you know, oh, whatever, it's a pigeon. And then like someone will come out with this amazing connection to, you know, their their homeland or, you know, the, the crop milk that pigeons produce. And I feel like, I guess I, you know, I worried, you know, when this book came out, I was like, well, I, I can't do something like this again, because like, that'll be so boring, like me making connections with animals, but just seeing the ways that other people have been making these connections and um, finding, you know, creatures that I am biased against or in, in my own way has just been so special and inspiring to, to my own project and sort of my ongoing reconsideration and search for connection with the animals that that are around me. And I think that my heart will always be in the sea, but I have been thinking a lot about bugs because when I was writing this book, you know, I wrote it a lot during the pandemic and it came out, you know, in, in, 20, in late 2022, which was a time, you know, where uh, there was another COVID wave and I was just kind of inside a lot and like always masking. And I just realized, you know, like I'm not going to get a chance necessarily to see an octopus or a whale, which maybe that's not related to COVID. <laughs> but I was just spending a lot of time in my apartment and realizing that the creatures that I spend most of my time with are bugs, are the house centipedes that live in my apartment, are the mosquitoes that I loathe. <laughs> Um, you know, the spotted lantern flies that, you know, I'm smashing and stomping on around New York City. And I think it's been really generative to sort of have gone through this exercise with animals that I already love and I already am so fascinated by and to try to pose that challenge to myself. Of how can I build connection with creatures that I'm a little bit scared of or I find a little bit gross? Um, and I think, yeah, writing this book, I, I wanted people to sort of engage in this empathetic act of finding connection with creatures. But it was also sort of like, you know, oh, I still have all these biases and I still have all these creatures that mean me no harm or are, you know, so fascinating in their own biology, but I, I should be um, becoming closer with. So I think my, my current thought project is like, how can I become closer with the bugs around me? And that's not one that I, I anticipated <laughs> I would ever try. <laughs> Yeah, the house centipedes might be the most challenging for me. They really are wild. They certainly have a lot of legs, yeah. <laughs> and then there's just like so little of like substance to them that it baffles me. But I think my thing that comes to mind when you talk about that is, and anyone who knows me listening will laugh because I am terrified of birds. And yet in mm. my life, in my life, I keep like encountering these instances where I need to either be near them or talk about them. And I'm like, I historically have just always been terrified of birds, but I'm like, maybe I need to try and loosen that up and let some of that go. <laughs> you know, what helped with house centipedes is I looked up a lot of like macroscopic photography just of their faces, right? Because like, 
if you normally see this creature, which kind of looks like two false eyelashes, like stuck together, like skittering on your ceiling, like that is not a great way to meet. (laughs) But if I'm like, you know, I was thinking like as a human, where do I find connection? It's like the faces of other people. Like I look at their eyes, I look at, you know, their mouths, I look at their, what everything that makes their face. And I was looking at these faces of house centipedes and like, I was like, actually, they're very cute. Like they have these really big eyes and something that I love about arthropods is they're basically all leg and different arthropods have just modified their legs to do different things. And so like how centipedes have these mandibles that help them bite, but they're all, they're actually just legs. And then they have these antenna that are also just legs that are like really skinny and just like more sensory. And I was like, that's so cool. They're just like this little pocket knife of like all these different modifications. And, you know, if I just think about the fact that they, you know, I don't, yeah, I think it was just helpful to sort of be like, where, where can I find common ground with this creature? So I don't know what that would look like for you and birds. Um, I'm also like not like a big bird person, but yeah, I, I know a lot of people are, so maybe they have. <laughs> I know, I'm always just like, I don't want to get in anyone's business, but I mean, maybe thinking about the centipedes as like Swiss army legs makes them a little bit more like palatable to me, but as long as they just don't come like too close to my physical mm-hmm. person, then, then we're fine. <laughs> I always think too, especially for authors that have had their books out for a little bit in hardcover and now sort of with a paperback release, a lot of times that can help really reach a whole new crowd of people. So who are you hoping finds this book? Yeah, I mean, I think like, uh, you know, a lot of the people who I sort of pitched as like, these are people who are going to really be interested in the book, you know, like science journalists, um, you know, people who love the ocean, whatever. I think that a lot of those people have found the book and I'm, and I'm really grateful. I think I I would really hope that this book finds like, I guess, younger readers. I think a lot of um, the college kids who I've met over the past year, like it's been really special to see them connect with, especially essays that I wrote when I was going through that experience. And I was, you know, I feel like so starving for self-discovery and some kind of identity that would be helpful in figuring out how I navigate the world. Um, but I also think I I would love for this book to find a lot of older readers. I would love for some boomers to read this book. I think, you know, I've recently been thinking a lot about the work of Hugh Ryan, um, who is this wonderful queer historian whose book, The Women's House of Detention, was like one of my favorite reads this past year. And he's been writing a lot about sort of a lot of the fear that people have about you know, why are so many people trans now? Why are so many kids trans? Like, what are all these gender identities? And I mean, I really appreciate how he sort of breaks down, you know, it's like, these are all related to the time and place that we find them, that we find ourselves in, like these labels are going to change. They were different 100 years ago, they will be different in 100 years. They're just the tools that we have right now. But I think I'm really proud of how in the book, I, I do write about a lot of sort of my own quest for finding my racial identity, finding my gender identity, finding my queerness. And I hope that it, you know, if, 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 were, if it were to re- reach older readers, maybe who have had these questions, but buried them a long time ago, or trying to understand their own kids or the kids around them, I think that would be a wonderful use of the book. I think that's great. I think there's so much community. I, I know I mentioned that before, but there is this sense when you read this that there is a great way to understand someone who may not be like yourself, but also I think when we're all comparing or looking at these sea creatures, there's just something there that 
we're looking for. I think there's so many people searching and looking to understand now. And I think there's no better way than through words, through literature, through memoir, through fiction, through all these things. There's something so connective about looking for someone's experience that may not be your own or someone's experience that might be like half a step ahead of you or a step ahead of Mm -hmm. you or three years ahead of you that you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to see what that's going to be. So I think that there's a lot of people who can come at the book in different ways and still find a home in the pages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it just, as you said, like, you know, I feel like a lot of people like it's so great to see someone like you represented on screen or in a book, but if, if you're not finding that, like no better way to look than in the ocean, which is like, you know, <laughs> I guess the the most creative space to find connection. Yes. I, I think anyone, if they really sat down and just like Googled sea creatures, there's going to be something for them because <laughs> there is the wildest things anyone could imagine living there. Yeah. So I have to ask because I'm nosy and I have to know. Is there anything coming up for you next? Is there anything on the horizon we can look forward to? Well, I I spent this past year, I think, recovering from the act of (laughs) writing the book and also just focusing on some personal things. But I think I really just have been thinking a lot about bugs and I am excited to, in the new year, start working on a second book about bugs. And when I say bugs, just in case there are any scientists out there, I'm not talking about the order Hemiptera, which refers to true bugs, but just arthropods, the sort of larger class um, of invertebrates that have exoskeletons um, crawling around in various places, some in the sea, a lot of them on land. But I think I, while how far the light reaches felt for me like uh, an exploration into finding connection and, and better understanding survival and adaptation and trauma, I, I'm hoping that this bug book can be an exploration of possibility and joy um and community so i'm i'm excited to write it i maybe there will be some sad things but um i yeah i'm i'm bugs is what's next <laughs> i can't wait i'll have to i'm going to start preparing now so that by the time it's out i'll be ready and not too frightened to read it <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today how far the light reaches is out in paperback i hope everyone gets their copy because they, it's something really special Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. This was an absolute delight. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.